I think, therefore I am. We know, the cliches start, but wait. So for four centuries now, this remark by Descartes linked the status of being a person with the ability to be aware of our own thoughts. But this conception of personhood and consciousness seems rather solitary, don't you think? If I think, therefore I am, how can I know that you think, therefore you are? Do we need validation? What if we're just not able to communicate our thoughts to others because we find ourselves at the borderlands of living? Today, we will dive for third and last time into the Borderlands of Living project. Members Lise Marie Andersen and Bess Bullsbeer have joined us on this journey down. And drawing on their experience in the clinic, we will explore the boundaries of an overlaps of personhood and consciousness. For example, how does the experience of patients with disorders of consciousness lead us to reflect on the limits of our own current understandings of these? And how is this problem situated in, but also defined by, its medical context? I'm Arno. And I'm Savannah. Welcome to the Interacting Minds podcast. Welcome, Bess and Lisa Marie, to the podcast studio. Welcome back, Arno. <laughs> Welcome, Savannah. So today we've invited two more members of the Borderlands of Living project to talk to us about their work. So if you go back as a listener to the episode with the medal, you can learn a bit more about the broader scope of the project. But today we want to dive a bit deeper into kind of two aspects of the project. But first, could we just get a quick recap of what the project is about? Bess, could you maybe tell us a bit about what would you say is Borderlands of Living? So when people ask me what I you know, do my research uh, within this kind of field, I, I normally say that um, I'm involved in this project, Borderlands of Living, where we explore how people who have like disorders of consciousness, who've been into like a coma before, you know, no, normally I say they are waking up. You know, I wouldn't do that in, in the setting, but when I explain it to people. And, and we are following... Um, the ways, the practices where they are, you know, looking into which kind of consciousness or which state of consciousness they're in. But that's more the anthropological side of it, because Lisa Marie, as you will explain, is much more into the philosophical part. So, 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 so this is my kind of part of the project I'm reflecting, but there was like the overall, we are looking at what is happening within this medical setting like at hospitals, um, where people who had a stroke or some kind of head injury are hospitalized, and then people like the health care professionals whom we are looking mostly at, like we are focusing in on their perspective, what um, what they conceive as consciousness through the clinical practices. And Lise-Marie, would you like to add to that? Uh, yeah, so I think that's uh, very well put in terms of the general interest of the project. And I think I share that interest as well. So how does healthcare professional uh, go about diagnosing, making decisions uh, in these very special and very uncertain cases. I, I guess my uh, philosophical perspective comes into uh, a more general theoretical perspective on like consciousness, what kind of evidence is used in this um, decision making. And also uh, the project originally started out with an interest in how neuroscience is introduced, functional neuroscience that is, is introduced as a tool uh, to make these decisions and to aid 
the diagnostics and prognostics for these patients with disorders of consciousness. And so one of my interests has also been what happens when a functional neuroimaging comes into the picture. And from the empirical perspective, we were in some sense unlucky that we didn't have much opportunity to follow the interaction or the action of the researchers in functional neuroimaging uh, with these patients um, due to lack of patience. But it still didn't take away for me, at least, the reflections on what actually goes on when a new technology like that is introduced in this setting. So it's a combination of observations in these settings, but also some interviews touching on this topic of what do we expect from neuroscience, functional neuroscience, that is, I have to say that because that's what's new. Functional neuroscience means that when you're investigating or scanning imaging the brain, you can actually track the activity in real time and combining that with what you know about what the person is doing at the moment, uh, like uh, thinking about their hobbies or <laughs> playing tennis or whatever. And in combination, you can actually get a kind of uh, look into the activity of the brain while something is taking part. And so uh, that's what's new and uh, you know what, what can be expected of this new technology. And I think it matches up really well with what you've done, Bess, also because uh, you have investigated what actually goes on at the moment with those technologies that are present. And I have also investigated what is the expectation of a new technology. Just to recap, mm. so you're working with practitioners in the clinic. So the focus, not the patients, but actually the practitioners and how they make decisions in this very complicated space. And if I understand it correctly, these decisions are how do we continue treatment? Do we continue treatment? And what is the best way forward? That is correct. Lisa Marie, you mentioned that that's what was expected of mm -hmm. those technologies. Mm -hmm. What actually happened? The bottleneck of the research project was in some sense partly that it had to be these anoxic patients that they're called. Anoxic because when you suffer from an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, what happens to your brain is actually that your blood, you know, your blood doesn't get pumped around and you don't get any oxygen to the brain. And they wanted to specifically look at these patients because they don't have uh, any kind of trauma to the brain. So the brain is kind of mm. intact. But there are not that many patients in our region. And then secondly, a lot of these patients end up dying uh, before they enter the, into this kind of after comatose situation. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of it. If I may add, yeah. they are also a bit complicated to identify. Um, so, so, and partly there was another thing that if they were hitting their head due to the fall of their heart attack, they, they couldn't enter this project because then there would be like a head trauma like from the outside and that would influence the pictures, right? So yeah. simply because you couldn't use the technology because you didn't have the patience. Yeah, that's why the research didn't happen, I guess. But of course, you could imagine <laughs> other things as well, that there's a lot of uncertainty using these instruments. And it wasn't clear that they had an idea about how to actually use it in the clinical decision making. Uh, so we did happen to follow uh, one patient where during this uh, the functional uh, neuroimaging uh, of this patient, they actually uh, saw some pattern of activity 
that might reflect uh, some kind of reaction. And they were very surprised by this because uh, initially they didn't uh, think that there would be any indications of consciousness in, in this particular patient. And of course, uh, so so we yeah so we we explored what happens then, and and it wasn't clear because this is this is new result. What does it actually mean when you get a result like that? Does it actually mean that there's a consciousness and this person has been conscious while uh, in the scanner? They knew that the the signal was not obscured or and was uh, good enough from a research perspective, neuroscientific research perspective. But what does it actually mean in the clinic? Does it mean that this person will have better chance of benefiting from uh, rehabilitation or not? That was not clear. So, but of course, this uh, project was also not meant to tell that it was a research project. So it's very limited. Also, the use of it uh, at the moment. The part of the project was to introduce it in research so that it later could be introduced in the clinic. So you don't have to have all the answers from first, of course. So I had a question for you, Bess. Mm. There's been ethnographic work done in one specific clinic. So it was a very situated project. And in one of your talks where you discussed the project, you talked about this space uh, as liminal. And I think it's a very interesting term to use. It's also very anthropological. Yeah. And could you define for us what liminality means? And why would you describe this space, this clinic for patients with disorder of consciousness as a liminal space? So firstly, I, I need to correct a bit because we were not only in one medical setting. Medi did field work in an acute setting, like before, um, like earlier in the trajectory mm. of the patient. And I was in the next one. It's like still intensive but they have introduced more neurorehabilitation kind of treatment. And then I actually also went along with one patient from this unit to another one where they offered neurorehabilitation, like uh, the extended version. She was actually, you know, offered uh, further treatment. So just to, to widen out the perspective. But uh -huh. the way... Yeah, so it's three, actually three... Exactly. Three different places. Yeah, yes. yeah. But of course covering... Uh, the same kind of patients so in that sense they yeah they reflect something of that you're asking for namely liminality or focusing in on where I was the most um, I was um, you know from the very beginning struck by this sense of being part of some um, a situation or setting where um, you know everything is at play It's like people have been into uh, a trauma, like either by being part of a car accident or having this heart attack. So they are living in between. Like you might survive and you might get better. And there is like a heightened sense of intensity. Um, there's a lot of machinery like coupled up uh, like um, to the patient. So they are monitored, uh, you know, 24-7. And there is like one healthcare professional present uh, in like observing the patient constantly. Well, during night shifts, they have two patients per person. So you see, there is a lot of attention going into observing whether or not this person partly will survive. And when they're coming further into trajectory, survival is secured. They are stabilized physically, as they say. And then they 
turn all their attention towards whether or not they are conscious enough to respond what they call relevantly. Like whether or not you can establish what we would say is like contact, eye contact is mainly used in the beginning, um, to, to find out whether they have the potential for actually being offered neurorehabilitation. So liminality in this space is part of, you know, at least when I define liminality, and I have to mention that I'm not an anthropologist, and that's their like that's their speciality, right? Mm-hmm. I come from science of religion, but we have something to do with it. So liminality is when you're in between. It's like a, a space where you shift status. And um, I was told when I entered this project by Meta, uh, because I come from a, a palliative care field where people are, you know, they are labeled as they are dying, right? And I've been occupied with that. And she told me, you shouldn't look at them as dying persons because I was, you know, eager to, you know, just continue my research. And she said, no, no, no. They're like in this status of in between. You don't know. And certainly when they have been stabilized, they're not dying, but they they might deteriorate or they might be not as much a person as before. So there is this kind of negotiation taking place of where to place this person. So it is really about their status as a person that is uncertain. Yeah. It does have to do with the ability to display consciousness. The fun part of how it it's, it's It's kind of tricky, I think, uh, because uh, in some sense that's correct, uh, that we're certain that we have a person in front of us if we experience that they show sign of consciousness. Feeling some nice touch or smiling if something nice is happening or the opposite if they experience pain. But at the same time, it's not like the person who disappears in the room in any sense that if if they're not showing signs of consciousness. When you're in the room, you have this experience of a person lying in the bed and the staff also treat the the person lying there as a person. So we shouldn't understand it as a, you know, if we don't find signs of consciousness, there's no person at all in the room. But it's a different sense because the person might not be present in the sense that we would expect. We've always found, at least what I found when I was uh, in the clinic as well, is that there's, there's always a treatment of that person as a person. And also the family stories, the all these things, what the person liked before, is always present around uh, the, the person and in their treatment. So it's not consciousness alone that determines whether we look at the person as a person. But of course, in a kind of longer term perspective, I would say consciousness is important. I think one of the, the, the doctors that I interviewed said it's the main thing. It's what we're looking for, because if there's no consciousness, what's what's there? Kind of nuance it a bit. That yeah. But it's still the status of this person in a way of being, how much present is present, you know? Yeah. Is it, are we reconstructing the person because the family have given, like, uh, told about this person's preferences, and they use that for designing kind of initiatives for testing out as well. It's not just to treat you as a person, that's part of it. So they got this person-centered treatment uh, perspective laid out, but it's also because they fine-tune they fine 
the way they interact with the patient accordingly because they they know of in in a way that the person we're speaking about has a preference of this kind of music so they anticipate if we play that the person might be more awake or get mo- motivated for doing certain things or interact with us in a more familiar way so so that they're also using this concept of a person for mm. their purposes yeah so personhood and consciousness uh, exist or are always displayed in this interaction with someone else a family member or a clinician i think that's true in some sense that's part of what we we actually reach one of these conclusions but at the same time there's this idea that you can be conscious uh inside so if i'm you know just uh, lying on my bed and not doing anything and showing no signs of consciousness and let's imagine that nothing has happened to me uh, immediately before like a trauma or a heart attack or something then you would expect me to be thinking about something or dreaming or you know some kind of consciousness and so there is this idea that consciousness can actually be inside and not shown uh, as a behavior that consciousness is you know part of what being conscious is to experience something and that's always a subjective experience from the inside So in that sense, it's not always thought of as interaction. But in this setting, if there's no interaction and if there's no kind of outward display of uh, behaviors that we can recognize, then it's difficult to say that there's consciousness. And we might also even doubt if there's no such thing. What is actually inside? Is it just a person like any of us sleeping or just lying down for rest or has something else happened what kind of you know what kind of state is experienced from the inside if there is such a thing as experience from the inside in this case so that's very interesting but at least what you looked at best is the methods of looking at what are the signs what are the that we look for for consciousness and those are always in some kind of interaction with the world or with people. Yeah, so we we actually use this kind of liminal space for exploring how do we actually perceive each other as conscious or having like being ascribed personhood. And we are right now writing on an article where we use that in the title calling it in acting consciousness. So there is some kind of practices that establish the sense of consciousness that we can agree upon. And in this medical setting, they use this agreement to reach decision taking. Finally, they have to either send the person off to uh, municipality care, where they're not receiving uh, neurorehabilitation. They're not specialized in, you know, keeping stimulating the person to to enhance their ability for communication or movement, or they are hospitalized in another setting where they keep this kind of training and focus on trying to establish ways of communicating. And that has to be highly individualized, doesn't it? This assessment of uh, or the training, you mean? Yeah, the training of finding ways to communicate. Surely, but they, of course, they have developed some kind of systematic approaches, because at least how I explored it, they are referring partly to the the physiology of the brain injury. So where is it placed in the brain, and 
for me as like an ethnographer, it was pretty uh, amusing in a way to see the pictures that was like explaining where in the brain this and this would happen, or this is the area for cognitive uh, like uh, processing or something, you know. And it was different. Uh, like when you came into the reception of this uh, hospital unit, there was um, a brain displayed in very like colorful areas. It was quite simple to see. Okay, here you got language. Here you got this kind of function. And when you entered the room where the doctors and the uh, physiotherapists sat, it was like a, a more you know, anatomically correct brain you saw from a different angle. And they were orientating themselves in this realm differently. So, But they used this kind of knowledge from the previous scans, and they took scans like repeatedly to see how the brain was actually uh, managing whatever happened to it to refer to what kind of interacting to expect from this patient. So they make different understandings, actually, also of this. What, what do you need to be conscious? Like, if your brain is really, really damaged, do you actually have the ability to establish certain kinds of consciousness and approaches? And do you continue to be a person, even though you're not able to respond in anticipated ways? To connect to this, actually, uh, so I was just thinking that might be good to explain the, the difference between functional and structural neuroimaging, mm -hmm. because structural neuroimaging um, is very much used in the clinic today, and that's when you get a um, a time slice, you could say, of a uh, the brain at a certain point where you can see whether there's any breakdown in structures and so on, and uh, that's very much used. So. The difference between that and the functional is that during the functional you get like a time frame of, of lots of slices so you can see what takes place under when you're doing a function or performing something. And so at the moment it's actually already integrated, neuroscience is already integrated into the decision making as you were pointing out. So this this kind of uh, image that we found in the halls and uh, you know on the walls posted, we don't actually know is this the space for language for that person uh, when we have the image. So they might be affected in different ways. It's just like a heuristic that you can use in order to try to anticipate. I was going to say it's really interesting that you share that because uh, I think this is the first neuroscience lecture you get at this university is. Um, this is across a lot of different patients that you find Broca's area or the language area in this specific region, but it must be so, so specifically different for the patients. And so, Lisa Marie, you have a background in medical philosophy. I don't even know how to call your field. Um, <laughs> I have a broad field, but uh, yeah. uh, part of it is medical philosophy, but also philosophy of mind. And actually, this is where it all comes together. So yeah. uh, philosophy of mind and neuroscience, and then philosophy of medicine combined because <laughs> i think it's so interesting you came into this project i'm just imagining myself being in your shoes and uh, having these theories of consciousness available to myself or mm -hmm. these theories of what is identity and what is personhood yeah. and then being in a space where this is very actively defined or not yeah defined. it was it was very special so i guess the first thing that uh, was very special for me uh, in this project was as a philosopher i've been used to working purely theoretically so just being in a room with a person where it really, really matters what consciousness is 
and how it's you know interpreted that was striking i think because as a philosopher the first, the second year in philosophy you get taught you know uh, philosophy of mind and you get all these theories of consciousness and big questions about how can we explain consciousness what is consciousness and so on but it's always been very abstract to me and suddenly i was in a situation where that actually mattered so that was that was an experience that i thought was really rich and uh, interesting But uh, also the first thing I noticed in the hallways were these uh, diagrams of brains with different colored areas. <laughs> And I've been spending years uh, <laughs> uh, looking at uncertainties in neuroscience and how it's difficult to translate function into areas in the brain. And so to see it uh, like this pinned out uh, was uh, also an experience. And I thought a lot about it. The thing about when when things come into reality is that decisions have to be made. Yeah. These patients do have damages to their brain. We do know that the brain has some responsibility in our ability to uh, have consciousness and think and so on. So it's just, you know, it's a tool. And that tool can be used. It's good enough for it to be used now as it is. And that's really something that is um, significant in medicine, I think. You mean the brain? I think not the brain. No, I mean the neuroimaging, the diagrams with the colors. Ah, okay. And neuroimaging has a long, I mean, by now, a long history and has come quite far. And it's actually striking how little of neuroimaging that has gone into the clinic. Also functional neuroimaging, which has uh, more than uh, 25 years history, which is actually not standardly used in the clinic yet. So that's actually quite striking in a sense, just as much as it's striking that it just gets transferred into these colorful pictures and used directly. But what happens in uh, medicine, which is also part of our uh, uh, article on uncertainty, is You know, sometimes you just have to deal with the uncertainty that's there and you don't always get the perfect answer or the, you know, perfect setup for your testing and so on. But you do have to just get on with what's there and act on it. But at the same time, uh, there's so many things in a clinical uh, experiment and in, a clinical, in clinical research that needs to be adjusted for. And as long as you do that in a good way, then uh, you need to kind of move on. <laughs> and I think we will soon link, so as soon as it's available, the paper that you're discussing or have been mentioning before, we will link it so people can actually dig deeper and follow up on that. Can you unpack the term uncertainty for us? Oh, wow, that's a, a tricky <laughs> one. Uh, so I guess one of the points about uncertainty that we looked into is that uncertainty isn't just one thing. Mm -hmm. Uncertainty is, is something that we experience and can be different from different perspectives, or at least, you know, what is the salient certain uncertainty in a certain situation will be very different depending on whether you're the clinical uh, staff who needs to make a decision or whether you're a researcher concerned with the neuroimaging, uh, the fMRI, um, is it functioning? How do we uh, go from one theory to the other? And you can't do everything at the same time, necessarily. Like, you can't eliminate all uncertainties at the same time. You have to kind of take a focus. So uncertainty is also linked to people, in a way. Yeah. 
so I think traditionally we have this idea, and I think media has a lot to do with it, that you either have consciousness or you don't have consciousness. This on-off button or there's a certain scale. People wake up and then they're aware or they're not aware. But uh, I think your work challenges this a bit. So um, at least in the clinical setting, they're quite aware of consciousness being something that is fluctuating. They talk about the brain's plasticity and the condition, like the physical condition of the patient, either being more or less available for assessing consciousness. So they have some kind of empirical, at least, or experiential respect for this being a phenomenon that's very hard to track in certain ways. And some of the, you know, very experienced healthcare professionals working in this area for years, they talk about a felt sense of people almost being there. They are hovering under the surface, something like that. So so they have some kind of technologies, even though it's a sensomotoric ways of improving whether there was kind of a response like a muscle tensing up or people adjusting like their gaze to one coming in or shifting like their position with their head because of a sound. All these kind of small details they, they follow up upon. But actually having this sense of uncertainty and trying to build knowledge about like making these registrations and then negotiating in between themselves whether this was a relevant response. Like, did, did it actually indicate that there was someone present and having an intention with this movement? This is something that happens like, uh, like into the relations and uh, maybe also power power relations. We, we didn't look into that. But they, they come to some sort of result from the negotiation, and there it established more as a kind of fact. It can still be negotiated, but they, they use it as some something they can actually steer towards or from saying, okay, we have established this as a sign of consciousness. There was something there. And sometimes it's more like a hunch, and they retest it, and they really do that systematically. And that is actually also interesting from like an ethnographic perspective, because when something happens spontaneously, like, oh, you looked at me because I came in and said hi, and then you say, could you look at me again? There is a certain, like, as a shift in, in the interaction, because now I want to test you. And before that, there was just like an immediate response. But it is the retesting or reproducing of this as a relevant response that is noticed and negotiated. So we, we actually try to 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 make like a, see this difference in the way we interact and try to establish what what they would conceive as consciousness. There's also an uncertainty in what you're mentioning here uh, with respect to what kind of consciousness is actually experienced if these patients with disorders of consciousness have consciousness. So it's it's standard uh, current standard in the field with diagnostics uh, is that you do have this idea that consciousness uh, ranges from lack of consciousness to uh, a tiny bit of consciousness, minimal consciousness, and then all the way on one dimension up until normal consciousness. We have little knowledge about how it actually looks from the inside, so to say, with these uh, patients. And I think we haven't mentioned really, so you asked me earlier, I know, what is people expecting from neuroscience? Mm -hmm. And I just want to mention what previous research has shown, that some of these people who are in what we call a vegetative state, which has usually been defined as lack of consciousness, but 
with people being able to maybe open their eyes and move their body in certain ways. Some of those patients have uh, shown brain activity in neuroimaging, active or passive, have uh, shown um, patterns of activation of the brain that are similar to healthy uh, subjects. That might, according to some researchers, uh, show that these people are actually conscious, even though we see no behavioral signs of consciousness. So this makes us think, okay, so what is consciousness in these people? So it's about 15% of these uh, subjects whose uh, activation patterns change when they're instructed to think about certain things, like playing tennis or something. So what's, you know, this seems like a special kind of patients where we thought that that they lacked consciousness, but suddenly there's some kind of activation shown in the brain that indicates that there might be some consciousness. And then there's a tendency, I think, to think, ah, it's consciousness. It's just one, either you have it or you don't. So in this case, you do. And then it's um, imagined as, you know, uh, consciousness like I would have it as a healthy person just lying there thinking about things. That might be the case for some patients, but it might also not be the case. We don't actually know what does it look like. Are these people able to form, as you were saying, best intentions? And does consciousness without intention feel anything like our consciousness? So there's, there's a huge uh, uncertainty there. And I think that's uh, interesting now in the field that they're starting to discuss also, is the taxonomy right in this field? Are the categories that we put people into? Is that right? And, our, and can we question our um, kind of fundamental assumptions about how consciousness is like one dimension from lack of consciousness to minimal to normal? Uh, so I think there's some really interesting uh, things going on in the field at the moment, and there's a discussion in this field about new terms. So does this kind of work really at edge cases of living, like borderlands of living, (laughs) do they make you reconsider the current models we have of consciousness? Are we rethinking what consciousness is or what personhood is? So I think definitely this discussion in maybe triggered by the functional neuroimaging actually has some, you know, some potential in moving our um, thoughts about uh, what consciousness is. Yes. So I would say that. Yeah, but coming to the clinic, I actually, um, we also discussed that a lot. We're noticing that um, it's not only conscious that counts, it's also how you function, right? So it's your ability to actually put it into an expression that's uh, perceivable for others because they don't walk around with this kind of technology to say, oh, would you like to wear this shirt or this shirt? Okay, we take scan, right? Yeah. So you, you, you can't really, you know, interact with others. And they are also like um, consuming this as an ethical question. So what is a life worth living? So this is part of the borderlands, right? Uh-huh. So if you're not able to actually express anything being a conscious person, or not, then what is you know your life quality? If you are able to be aware of the situation you're in, but you don't have any influence on your surroundings and you can't express yourself, you know, would you like to to live in a situation like that? So they are questioning these kind of things. So actually, sometimes they boil it down to how well you are able to function, right? 
and they try to really establish some kind of understanding as you as the person before the accident yeah. to say, okay, this person would really not like to be dependent on help 24-7. So maybe we should withdraw treatment. Mm -hmm. So, and if, you know, they have examples of people coming back to them and reflecting with them, like special cases, right? But there are some who are like, they were just happy for having a minimal way of functioning because mm -hmm. they still appreciated their life and their relationships. So um, just to add yeah. to this understanding of consciousness, as we can be, as researchers, very occupied mm. by, but here it's also very practical. And we have to remember this is a very, very expensive uh, treatment that mm -hmm. they've been giving, right? Having a nurse per patient, 24 7 it's it's not cheap so they also have to be careful about resources and we find that very interesting in our setting that they also have some kind of sense of responsibility of should we continue this kind of treatment if there is no progression if they have no potential for neurorehabilitation or should we you know give another person the chance of having this highly specialized treatment and see if they get better i think Lisa marie said this before is um I, th I think for the layman or like have not been in this situation, I often assume continuing treatment is, is like it's the positive thing in discontinuing. But I think we often forget that it's also very drowning and draining for the families and the patients involved to be continued on treatment if there's no progression in any way. And I think um, best you're continuing this kind of conversation with families as well now. So like what it means for the families to be in these situations and these relationships where you have to maintain the personhood of a family member or friend. Exactly. And we are trying to explore how their narratives of the patient's life and their person is actually used, like from a healthcare perspective, and what they think they can like contribute to the best possible trajectory of the patient, their loved ones. And, and we are like in, in this small group, uh, we are also like reflecting upon How do, you know, the, the relative try to continue their relationship through telling these narratives, like establishing the same person as was there before and trying to mirror it into like the new way of receiving or perceiving the person because of the restrictions, like the limited ways of being able to actually respond. Um, and we find that highly interesting and we touch upon how they deal with it. You know, there's different strategies which are, you know, coming forth as part of the narrative, like whether they are hopeful or they try to be realistic, as they say, or they are, you know, um, listening very much to what the healthcare professionals say about the patient's condition or whether they try to help and be part of producing some of these relevant responses and insist on the patient being the same as before, wanting to have this and this and this. It's very interesting, and in certain ways, it's a very difficult situation for them to be in. They're in a crisis, and they, they, they have to represent the patient in ways that um, they might not have imagined before. In our earlier podcast with Alberta on AI, on these, uh, with respect to these people, uh, patients, we discussed this uh, window of opportunity, which we have uh, from another research group, this label, that... Uh, it's it's a window of opportunity for, of course, uh, continuing a neurohabilitation if there's progression. But it's also a window of opportunity in some sense to 
to discontinue the treatment if there's no progression. So it's not just a question of necessarily that the relatives or loved ones uh, always want to move forward with the treatment. It's also sometimes, the, as you said, uh, Bess, they're, they're representative. And that also means that sometimes they need to express that this person would not want to uh, live in this state if there's no progression, if there's no hope, as you are also mentioning, Bess. Then, so that's, it's kind of a, um, a special time and a, there's a kind of, you speak of a window of opportunity um, in this case because as soon as you continue treatment to a certain extent, they might survive, uh, but what kind of life would a person not progressing have in this instance? And that's very important that these considerations are taken into account. I think you're really broadening our understanding in this field and uh, kind of coming to the end of the episode. Is there anything that you would like others to take away from your research as a kind of interdisciplinary project or kind of specifically to the content where you feel like this would be important for people to keep in mind? Well, actually, it's just like another question um, um, regarding personhood. And it's like um, just me wondering whether we are telling ourselves forward, like we are establishing ourselves through like this narrative, or whether we are practicing in another way our personhood, like through actions and ways of establishing ourselves con continuously and getting this kind of self-awareness from it, because I'm this person because I act in this way. Because there's a lot of enactment happening in this medical setting, but also, you know, supplied with this kind of narratives from the, the, the relatives that fill in so you actually conceive this patient as a person, at least. So that's, you know, it's not like you should take it away, but just like me wondering. Yeah. I think we've already touched upon some of the things that I think are important, like the nuances of consciousness. Project has also been about this. How do we introduce new technologies? What, uh, what are the uncertainties and how, what's the difficulties in introducing new technologies into a field? And here I think the most important thing is this that you also touched upon best is the perspectives of researcher and the clinic. And you have to respect when you're doing research in uh, a clinic, the perspective of the clinic is the patient and the importance is to treat or not treat as appropriate and make decisions. And that might actually sometimes conflict with interest in that we have in research And that we should find, you know, when when all things uh, work together, uh, that's, of course, the, the most interesting situations that we can have. Uh, but it's just important to be respectful as a researcher towards what actually goes on in the clinic and what are the kind of decisions that we're dealing with. So it might be interesting for a philosopher or a neuroscientist to uh, look into what consciousness is, and that might be the main interest, but it just means something completely different when we put it into this situation. And I think that's, that's important. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. If people are interested in more about Borderlands of Living, so you can listen to two more episodes on the project and uh, follow Mette and Lise-Marie and Alberto on kind of different parts of the project. We will also link everything in the show notes. And if there's any new papers, you can check it out on the Borderlands of Living webpage, which we'll also link. And there's also a YouTube talk by Bess, which I really enjoyed listening to. So you can kind of 
venture around and also reach out to them in the Borderlands of Living Twitter page probably and um, follow them there. Edited and produced by Kirsi Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermeer, and Savannah Schulz. Music by Simon Kark. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.